0: You have to be willing and able to reevaluate. For a very long time, our portfolio has been relatively stable, but we've also been in a relatively tight band of regime, largely driven by interest rates. I would say that interest rates are probably the primary factor that would change all of the potential to make change. And, and that's something that's been said internally in our organization for many years, is if we were to go back tomorrow to an interest rate period where you know, interest rates are 8%. That's gonna have really different, longer term, 10-year implications for asset classes. So I I think the way that we try and build it is, there's no portfolio that can be built on a permanent basis. That said, unless there's strong reason to believe that the regime has actually shifted, you, you really need to kind of stick to it.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction,
3: Niels. And uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by Jason Morrow. Uh, Jason is Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Utah Retirement Systems. Utah Retirement Systems manage 54 billion US dollars in retirement assets. And as Deputy CIO, Jason helps direct all aspects of URSS investment activity. Jason, great to have you on the podcast today. How, how are you today? Hi, Alan. Great to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on and chat to us. Um, as is typically the case, we like to ask people just to give a little bit of background on their journey in the financial markets and the investing world. So uh, what was your path to becoming a
0: deputy CIO at uh, Utah retirement systems Uh, serendipitous for sure I uh you know if if we're talking the whole journey and we often ask managers and and other investors to tell us their long story I won't do that Um, but typically often find you can learn a lot from managers going back a long ways and sort of understanding their motivations and their why for why they're in the industry I think for myself uh, at a really young age I was introduced to this concept of, of compound interest in fact my grandfather who had been a banker at one point in time had said, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, kid, those who understand interest earn it. And those who don't pay it, he called everybody kid. But that that phrase sort of resonated somehow at a a pretty young age and and bounced around and rattled around in my head still does to this day. And uh, so Interestingly, you know, as a teenager, I was I was the oddball that would write off to mutu- write to mutual fund companies and request their prospectuses and sort of seek to understand what it was they were doing, how they were doing it. Um, that would have been in the mid '90s, and back then, Reg FD didn't exist in the U.S. at that point, and active equity management was still still a thing. Fast forward from there, uh, you know, put myself through. Undergraduate and grad school, working for a subsidiary of United Health Group that was uh, focused on healthcare information systems and data, and knew that I wanted to move into an investment role. That had that had been my goal since uh, probably since a teenager. I just the markets are an ever-evolving puzzle, and I think learning is a is a strong strength of mine and. What better place to do it and what better type of uh, field? I didn't know that the term allocator existed back then and you know as most most thinking about it those days are focused on picking stocks that's the most common thing people do um, and so I went to school and you know found the the classes that had investments as a topic and uh, studied finance in retrospect I wish I would have studied other fields um, but I studied finance and and ultimately in grad school I found myself, um, working for what's known locally here as the University Venture Fund, which is a, a program that combines students that have an actual fund of their own pool of capital, and we invested alongside venture capitalists throughout the country. So that that was a really interesting uh, experience, and, and I learned a ton. In fact, I, I remember often having the opportunity to go to board meetings and thinking, I'm, I'm learning a lot more here than I am at school. So this is a far more interesting Uh, place to be and and then ultimately from there um, a colleague at the Venture Fund tapped me one day and said did you know there's a $20 billion plan down the street building out alternatives programs we should apply and so we did Uh, and you know I I originally took the role thinking this would be a good springboard but into the industry but um, ultimately have since come to immensely value the impact we have on our local community and sort of that combination of professional investing in public service that comes from working for a pension fund. I, I, I never valued that until the first time I randomly walked up to a, a policeman in a grocery store and said, Hi, my name is Jason. I work for the, the retirement systems. What's your name? I immediately had a new best friend. Uh, and that, that experience was really rewarding. So I joined URS in 2007 to begin, um, as they had already been a couple of years into a hedge fund program, I didn't have Background in hedge funds or anything, just you know, sort of an eager um, person out of grad school. But I learned it really quickly, and I think in the the compression time that was the great financial crisis, picked up somewhere between five and ten years of additional experience in the course of about twenty four months. So that was the beginning of my journey. I think as a as an individual, I'm naturally very intellectually curious. I love to learn. I love to analyze. I love to deliberate the pros and cons to evaluate upside downside and the probabilities and so it's been a great fit and I, I really enjoy
3: that very good yeah and um, so it's obviously a very interesting seat you know you're looking at a huge portfolio of 50 50 billion dollars plus and um, when you're I mean just to set the stage for for the conversation around kind of the your approach to asset allocation etc are there any particular Uh, constraints uh, or what are the objectives obviously it's a pension plan which uh, maybe is is run with the objective of of i guess uh, fulfilling the 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 liability side but but from your perspective how would you describe the investment objective and any constraints that are on the
0: portfolio well the kind of the the two pools of capital we oversee, the the pension is about $44 billion and the defined contribution is $9 billion. Um, that's 401k and other type of assets. So let's focus on the pension side, which has the more sort of, um, I think, modern approach to asset allocation and has for a long time. The primary objective is a 4.35% real rate of return. So we okay. we strive to achieve a 6.85%. Bogey and the inflation assumption has been 2.5. I know that you know we will at some point undergo an asset liability study and press refresh on that inflation assumption. Uh, I think if you look at the current situation, it seems low, and if you look at the forward markets and what markets seem to be pricing in, um, TBD on where that inflation assumption yeah. comes out. Um, the primary constraint, I would say, for us is <clears throat> back in the dot-com bubble – Utah Retirement Systems has always been forward-thinking in terms of asset allocation and seeking additional sources of potential return and diversification. Uh, and there, we had—you um, know—I wasn't there at the time, but I—I I can see the legacy that the dot-com had as an influence on the plan. And sometime after that, there's language in our investment policy statement that says, as a primary objective, we will strive to achieve diversification due to the volatility of public equity. Well, now, why, why does the volatility of public equity matter? Well, as a, as a pension, um, there are 488 different state entities that participate in the pension system. And volatility in plan assets has a direct Connection to the volatility in their budgets, and obviously the worst time to call and ask and say we need higher contributions is in a contraction or in a down market or in a, or in a, in a yeah. period of recession. And so our primary constraint tends to be, um, and I'd say the friction between the re- the return and the and the risk objectives, um, because they're they're sort of opposite. You know, you have to take enough risk to generate the return, but if you take too much risk, you can really move those returns around, and then those have downstream flows to all these entities. So our primary constraint is more of a how do you achieve the return objective while also maintaining a vol level that doesn't mess with a state's budget. And so when we think about the risk constraint, the primary risk constraint is to moderate volatility Mm -hmm. but still take enough risk to achieve the goal.
3: And I mean, could you say, I mean, in broad terms, what, what would the overall portfolio look like in terms of
0: realized vol over time? Oh goodness, realized all over time. I think we model it in somewhere between 13 and 15, which which sounds like, you know, relatively reasonable. On a realized basis, it's been strikingly lower than that. And I, and I think part of that is the The interplay in terms that you know some alternatives and illiquids have lower marks. We we don't give them any credit for that. You know it's a very hollow victory because the performance eventually comes through, and you can't you can't really sort of say oh well it doesn't get marked so it's going to lower the ball. That that's going to bite you at the wrong time. So but I think on a realized basis ours has been quite a bit lower. When we look at reports that come from our consultant uh, on a on a risk adjusted basis we have. Amongst the lowest volatility in the entire nation, and I think a large portion of the purpose for that is because the volatility of assets has implications for terminal wealth down the road. You know, the more vol, the bigger the range of outcomes. Um, Especially if you have to, if you have liabilities you pay along the way. You know, dollars and, and money that draws down but has the potential to recover can be value added. Dollars and money that draws down that then gets spent is money lost.
3: Right. So I mean to sum up, you're trying to you're saying you want to take enough risk, obviously, to meet your liabilities, but you don't notwithstanding being a kind of a long term investor, you don't want to have too much volatility month to month, year to year, because the implications it can have in terms of calling more capital. So you're trying to balance that and it comes out at running a portfolio at a little bit under kind of public equity market index fall. It's a fair assumption, is that
0: right? Yeah, and, and I think that along those same lines the it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you first get into the industry, you sort of have a total return mentality, but you have to adapt to your client's needs. And so, you yeah. know, as a pension, we are definitely return seeking, but not total return. If, if there's a way to save some risk and achieve the same return, we're likely to to take that path. Yeah. Okay.
3: You touched on the kind of return objectives and the assumptions, to. 4.35% real, 2.5% inflation assumption, which as you say, obviously we're in a higher inflation environment at the moment, but maybe if you look at, I guess, 10-year break-evens, probably in the in a kind of similar range. Um, I guess inflation is pretty, pretty important to a pension plan. It influences, obviously, the liability side. Um, in an environment like we've had this year, where inflation has been higher than Many people had expected going back twelve months. Does that cause you a lot of headaches? Does that cause you to kind of re-examine the portfolio, or you know, have has the portfolio been always kind of constructed with the perspective that at some point we may get a, an
0: overshoot in inflation? We skew more to the latter of trying to always have some some form. That the challenge at forty-four billion dollars is with with a lot of. Illiquids and alts, you can't move that around all that quickly. So you have to think in terms of longer term. And, and when we construct the portfolio, we do start with a traditional mean variance framework and we overlay some judgment and assumptions on top of that. But the next thing that we certainly do is we also consider different types of regimes. And in a in a simplistic approach to regimes, you know, you can have basically either a growth slash non-growth environment or inflation slash non-inflation environment, the last 40 years has largely been in that relatively decent or strong growth and either declining or modest inflation. That, that That is the absolute best. In fact, I think we've got some history on it. It's something like 78% of the time, year to year, that is the environment. And so your most portfolios are appropriately kind of built towards that. And I, I think long-term, you also have to think in terms of that structure because the market returns tend to be skewed, Skews the wrong statistical term, but they tend to be right of, of zero, right? So on balance, the market overall and over the long term is up. And when we look at those dimensions, you can overlay different, different types of assets into those different quadrants of growth, recession, low slash high inflation. And we have long felt that as a pension fund, inflation is always your enemy in the near term. In the long term, ownership of equity assets tends to flow through. And the best quote unquote hedge for inflation is just the equity ownership of of economically viable assets that create value for society. And long term, that's what you should own. However, in the near term, your liabilities, unfortunately, don't take a holiday. <laughs> you know, They don't take yes. time off. Yeah. They're consistent, persistent, and, and relatively stable and linear. So we have... You know since 1981 have had an allocation to a real assets portfolio in real estate so we've always had an element i think in the near term we looked recently at our performance and we're sort of surprised at q2 because of where our performance is but we also have um some really we have some assets in our real asset portfolio that have a lot of upside asymmetry to inflationary environments and they've been performing so you know the book; it's 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 hard to manage because when you put together those different environments um, in those four quadrants and say overlay them with assets, the problem is is you're not really built to outperform in any of the specific environments. <laughs> so sure. Yes. On a year-to-year yeah. basis, you're always sort of looking at it and going, "Well, we we didn't outperform this year, but for us." We then shift, and, and, and most of our reporting starts with what's the 10-year number. I, I think there's a huge mm-hmm. amount of um, investor psychology in terms of just the way you read things, you can set expectations. So if your board reports or your performance reports start with the most recent quarter, and that's on the left side of the sheet, that's where people are gonna start talking. Ours are, yes. are skewed to the right side so that we can take a longer-term view and default the conversation with starting long-term. Don't start with the short-term. Short-term is mostly noise. And long term yeah. is where where the the noise gets uh, gets ironed out.
3: And I'm I'm curious. I mean, you you touch on the different regimes, and I mean, a lot of the conversation we we have on this podcast is you know the possible shift in the macro sh- regime, and and nobody knows, and even um you know you get one month of uh, cpi that's a little bit better than expected and everybody is convinced that the inflation scare is over etc and um but you know i, I guess as a asset allocator as you say you have to manage for different scenarios different regimes um if we had you know kind of the the the, the not to doomsday but certainly the more challenging environment of higher inflation kind of or persistently high inflation and persistently say disappointing growth and and equity returns being um you know flat to negative or at least in real terms over say a decade or something like that would that prove very challenging or or would that be something that's still manageable via your diversification or would that you know if that became apparent over time that we were in that regime that would prompt any kind of kind of more
0: significant change in the approach i think in that type of a more structural persistent we'd have to reset to some degree. I think everyone would okay. because that's the one okay. quadrant that, you know, putting, you know, ironically cash and gold work very well in that quadrant. And they often don't work in any of the others. So you'd have to press refresh. Uh, I think in the near term, you know, we don't move quickly uh, by design. And in the near term, like we we would be okay. You know, our our, our outflows are relatively modest as a pension Um, We're in the the I think enviable position of being nearly fully funded and have relatively modest outflows. So, and and that's largely a function of sort of governance and structure and forward thinking. and And I think that those are key to sort of setting up for success. But for sure, if we move into an environment of you know even slightly higher inflation, I think the market celebrated the lack of another uptick, (laughs) which which is uh, and I think you know let's get two or three. Months or of those types of data points, I think one is is a nice uh, data point. But in markets, I'm always sort of worried about the head fake that happens so often, where you get one month and then you know that that's the outlier. Uh, the trend then continues. So we'd want to see a, a continuation of that before we get too celebratory. Um, but if it stays higher, you know, inflation at five, six, seven, that that's a that's a pretty powerful compounding erosion of purchasing power um i think in our portfolio for the near term we have a lot of assets that are are dramatically skewed to that and uh, well not a lot i mean it's but it's it's not an immaterial portion and and the asymmetry of capture has been has been compelling
3: okay so i mean talk to us a bit about that in terms of the asset allocation mix so i guess you're trying to build a portfolio that has enough risk but but equally has um, volatility uh, dampeners in there and equally has assets and strategies that can help you out in an inflationary environment. So you're kind of trying to balance the portfolio for, for different scenarios. So, so what does that come out at then in terms of a, an asset allocation uh, profile?
0: So the asset allocation, um, I used to s- describe it sort of as a 40-20-40, being 40% global equities, which really exists to, to capture that participation in, in growth and in public equities you know public equities are the largest portion of our asset allocation uh, but it's still relatively modest at 37 percent um, coupled with private equity you know we get which is a 12 percent target we get closer to kind of a 50 percent equity mix and then a 50 percent of other types of assets some of many of which do have equity like profiles they're just not in traditional equity market. So a 40, 20, 40, I think today we're actually closer to 37, 20, 43. And, and next in line after the allocation equities is, is investment grade fixed income. The purpose of that portfolio, you know, if you look back historically, um, investment grade had, it was small, but it still had a, a positive real rate of return relative to similar duration treasuries. And so while always a bit of a drag, the nice thing about, um, investment grade fixed income is it, it, it provides a lot of options for you. And so, um, the other portion of our portfolio is split between real assets, private equity, uh, and absolute return, uh, which are diversifying and, and hedged strategies. And that investment grade portfolio serves to provide liquidity to pay out benefits, but it also feeds the other two portfolios in periods of downturn or correction or drawdown things like that. And then, you know, we have an active rebalancing program, um, try to be far more systematic than not uh and and then on top of that we do have uh a couple of really marginal tactical tilts that are not discretionary they're programmatic when certain you know when when credit spreads hit a certain level we can we can turn on a, a buying program um and some things like that so high level you know the purpose of of the alternatives in the 40 20 40 approach is uh additional sources of return that are not available in traditional markets and also additional sources of diversification not available through traditional markets.
3: Okay, so a couple of points to pick up there. One, obviously you're maintaining uh, kind of a, a 20% exposure to fixed income investment grade uh, uh, bonds. Um, has that come down over time as, as yields have come down or has that kind of been fairly stable over the last number of years? Um, you know, a lot of people kind of had, been calling for the end of the 60 40 obviously or not 60 40 but people that when yields got really compressed obviously on a, on a kind of a uh, on a forward-looking basis uh returns that looked more challenging or is it something that you always keep for that kind of diversifying element and that income generation or how, how do you think
0: about fixed income i guess in the portfolio we have maintained the strategic target at 20. The mix of it has changed a little bit over time. You know, if you go back a number of years, I mean, that that 20 includes linkers, it includes global, because there are so many curves globally that you can create some additional diversification. So both our public equity and public fixed income are on a more global basis. Uh, but broadly speaking, the, the fixed income portfolio is a keep it simple, don't get too clever don't don't add unintentional equity beta or other things with high sensitivity because you need that portfolio to do its job at the right time. Which is, you know, when public markets decrease in value or other assets decrease, you need it to be liquid. A and second, um, have have not lost, <laughs> not you know, have have not have not lost its value. Yeah,
3: and you touched on. Equities, public equities, just under forty percent, and then private equity, say eleven percent. You know, and there's been this tremendous growth in privates over the last couple of decades now. And you've mentioned, you know, Utah were an early stage investor in private equity. Some, I guess, some investors have maybe taken it to even a greater extreme in terms of the public-private balance. What? What's? Um, how do you think about what's the appropriate mix there between? public and private and you know i suppose one of the other question that we get are we thinking about sometimes uh, as non kind of private equity experts looking at it from the, from the outside in there's often this perception that oh it's less you know people think it's because it's not, not marked as frequently it's kind of okay safer place to be almost even though not really um is that you know, are those are that less frequent marks? Does that impact your thinking? Is that beneficial in any way? Or you know, ha, wh- what's your overall way of uh, kind of assessing the merits of public and private in, in the equity space?
0: Wow, we can—that's a lot we can dig into. Um, but let me <laughs> let me start with kind of at the top. I think the private equ- the challenge of private equity is similar to challenges across and and by challenge I mean implementation across other alternative assets. Wherein public Market dispersion across strategies is relatively tight. There's a reference pool of assets in the index that you can go replicate if you seek to do so. So, you know, the choice of implementation on public markets is is generally a bit more philosophical. You know, do we believe in active? Is there merit to active? Do we believe more in indexing? I I won't necessarily call it passive because every index has its own strategy. It's just very consistent in how it's applied. So indexing versus active, should we just take the low-cost approach for indexing? And effectively, all alternatives don't work like that. You know, there is no reference pool of assets you can go replicate. There is no accessible statistical profile you can just go buy and add to your portfolio. For sure, there have been a lot of replication approaches. They tend to be inferior. Um, so, and private equity is no different. I I think that. There are a lot of tailwinds to private equity, however, Um, not not just from capital raise, but the number of public securities, uh, tailwinds and advantages. The number of public securities, especially in the U.S., has decreased dramatically. Many companies are choosing to stay private for far longer because the ecosystem in private equity has evolved to where you don't necessarily need to go public to you know, to sort of move to that next stage. Additionally, private companies have, I think, far more tools as far as governance to be able to do the right thing. I mean, if one of the one of the greatest books in um, that I really enjoyed in the past twelve months was reading Michael Dell's uh, biography, and he talks about this very interesting pivot he had to make with his internal team and getting them to not be focused on how the public market was going to view certain changes. And you know, the, this, this ability to take a longer term view was, was really game changing for them. And it's interesting, private equity, I think, it's not a question of, um, you, you asked the question is, you know, how do you think about the mix? And, and I think some of the factors that matter most are your size in your access. Unfortunately, one of the keys to having a very successful private equity program starts with already having a very successful private equity program. It's not an asset class that you can just go say, let's add this and we'll do exceptionally well. The great managers who have been around for quite a while have exceptionally long wait lists and they pick their clients. And so, you know, private equity, I I think, if you're building your mean variance or your construction, right, you should absolutely apply a much higher level of volatility to it than public equity. That said, um, you know, I think one could argue that private markets don't value things enough. And on the other side, it could be argued, public markets tend to overdo it. So the balance between the two tends to probably get closer to reality. And um, at least in our case, we're still, we're big enough to matter to our, partners but not so big that we can't still do unique and interesting things
3: okay um so it sounds like implementation pretty important uh, uh in terms of that and i know that's one of the messages that comes out in relation to the the much kind of discussed yale model of it's not just about um asset allocation i guess it's about i guess access as well is that is that a fair uh, fair description, or is that something you would look at as as something that is you would like to, that, that you think is something to replicate, or is there something unique about the the Yale and Swenson approach that, that 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 was specific to them that that other investors won't necessarily be able to replicate? Yeah, I
0: think that the quote unquote Yale model gets viewed first as an asset allocation approach, but upon further depth and inspection, you find that the allocation is is part of it, but also so is access, and so is governance. And do you have the right team? Do you have the right stability in the organization? Do you have the right decision makers? And then can you genu- genuinely be long term? I think a lot of the alternative asset classes, if you sort of take the the, the typical performance chart that shows the ten year annualized by quartiles, and you sort of look at it and go, well, hey, I, I want to access some of these much much better returning strategies. Truth of the matter is, frequently, if, if those relationships don't already exist, you have to kind of delete a lot of the line items in those top quartiles because they're not accessible, which means the overall accessible median actually comes down. And, and that's where you have to be careful, because if the median doesn't include best performers, the median is often below what you can access in the public markets and therefore you know, buyer beware. But implementation is absolutely key. You know, it's it's not a function of hey, let's just go invest in, you know list your 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 favorite groups you'd like to invest with. Um, you've got to have that governance in place that 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 understands what you're trying to get into, and then enables the allocator team to go and to, to pursue it and takes a long term view. I think it's possible today to build an outstanding, best performing private equity program. But I don't think you can do it in twelve months, and I I, I think it's a it's a multi year, if not perhaps a decade long, to put the pieces in place. Okay,
3: so you touched on in terms of the alternative side a little bit on the real asset side and the private equity side. In terms of absolute return, hedge funds, quant strategies, obviously something that we talk about a lot here on this podcast. I mean, when you're thinking about absolute return, and um, you know, I guess hedge funds. You've got a whole spectrum of different strategies there, from kind of long short, uh, relative value strategies to directional strategies like trend following and global macro. So, what's the is uh, what, I suppose what's your model for
0: thinking about the different strategies and their role in the portfolio? So yeah, I, and I frequently. Absolute return is where I started 15 years ago, and then you know that was 2007, and within 18 months, uh, learned a lot more about the space. <laughs> um, I, I think they, if done well, they can be an absolutely fantastic part of of an asset allocation. Um, access isn't as challenging uh, as it is in in some of the private market strategies, and the potential for return. While I'd say more moderate, the potential for diversification is pretty strong as well. You know, in a year like this, the CTA strategies and many of those others um, are performing exceptionally well, and and as w- and within expectations. I frequently give the advice to students or others and say, "Hey, if you can join a hedge fund program, you should, even if it's not where your passion is." Of the different asset classes, you know, I've and I've now allocated to basically all of them it is the most difficult to get right with persistence. Um, and, and I think that that one also has the most potential to diversify. So those types of strategies, you know, for, for our portfolio, I think, I think the other thing to do um, is to think about them holistically within your, your whole portfolio. You know, if you're an organization that believes strongly in active management um, on, on public equities and you have a fantastic book, of active long only equity managers you may not need long short in your portfolio on the flip side you may believe completely impassive but you may have the view that because there are now more etfs than stocks um you know there's potential and, and for a number of reasons with far more passive or index investors there's more potential for price discovery and that kind of a structure long short can be useful i think the way that i like to think about it in our portfolio is really a couple of categories relative to total plan that first category I'll call it minimal and minimizing systematic exposures these are strategies such as Ctas which can either have extremely low correlations or um, negative they can they can really be beneficial to a total plan uh, and then the other category is you know sort of uh, well and in that first category of minimal and minimizing, You just have to know that these things can sometimes have really episodic periods of performance. You you may go for long periods with relatively uninspiring outcomes, and then you know be followed by them working and punching well above their weight in periods when you need them to, such as twenty twenty and twenty twenty two. The other category I refer to as sort of more moderate beta. These are strategies that are you know a point three maybe 0.5 on the upside to public markets and sort of economic sensitivity, but they're far more consistent in their performance numbers. And when you, when you couple that together, at least in a year like this where the Barclays ag is down 10%, um, that type of a, of a portfolio can be positive and can be a nice sort of tool in the portfolio, but it's, it's not about owning it as a, as an exposure, you know, even within, those categories of strategies there is there is skill and and you need to be able to identify it and then implement
3: okay and you said it's the most difficult i think it's the element of the portfolio i think it
0: was that you're referring to the hedge fund absolute return component is that it well none of them are easy but that one i think is by far the hardest to get right on a on a consistent basis. We, we've we done so, and I think that's largely because we have a senior team that's been together for 15 years and largely was together pre-GFC, and so those lessons have become institutionalized and, you know, carry through to how we make decisions today. And
3: is that not falling? I mean, what's difficult? Is it not falling foul of kind of, um, you know, exiting strategies just because we're in a drawdown, or is it, do you think manager selection is particularly difficult, or is it that um, the the return profile and the correlations can be variable over time, or what would you say is the, is the kind of the, the the really challenging part of hedge fund allocating?
0: All of the above, <laughs>
3: yeah. of the above. <laughs> you know yeah, it's, fair enough. You yeah. know,
0: a, a lot of it, you know, and I, I think that it's it's I think one of the challenges actually can be solved if you approach it first from the perspective of remembering that ultimately the, your first assets or risks are the people making decisions. And so you need to make sure that you know excel will tell you excel or any quant tool will tell you what has happened but it won't tell you why and it won't tell you how they make decisions it won't tell you what their personal utility curves are in terms of you know what they value and how they're going to do things so i think the quantitative is definitely useful for screening and understanding particular periods and and but use it as a tool to start to figure out what to ask not to draw conclusions and from there I, you really have to get to know the skill set of the people and the character of the people, because ultimately, you know, if you're going to be in it for the long game um, that's, you know, that's, those aren't decisions that you want to be remaking every two to three years. You know, ideally when we enter a relationship, we have at least a five year view on that relationship. And we may have spent because our portfolio is relatively mature, you know, we don't need to change things all that often. We may have spent a year or two years getting to know a team Across parts of the cycle, seeing how they make decisions, Uh, and then you know, thankfully we've we've been able to put together long-term partnering relationships with which I think are beneficial for both sides. Because the the more you get to know a group, the more you under you you're prepared to understand those periods of underperformance or challenge, and evaluate them with fresh eyes and say, you know, is this is this an internal issue or an external issue? And if it's if it's uh, external, you can be patient. If it's internal, I think you have to reassess.
3: And I mean, it's interesting. You talked about getting to know the managers, and you know, you said at the outset that's one of the things that you focus on is trying to understand the manager's story—long uh, story or short story, whichever it may be. Um, what are you looking for in in that story that is interesting or relevant that might tilt you to say, okay, this is a manager that might be more interesting to learn a, a bit more about when people talk about their story? Because conscious that everybody has narratives, there's narrative bias, there's all types of different biases, which I'm sure we can get into um, that we can be seduced by. But what do you think is relevant uh, to be looking for when you're when when you're hearing about the background of, of a manager?
0: Well, you know, the the phraseology we frequently refer to as outstanding and thoughtful investors. And the outstanding is, is a, a pattern of judgment and decision-making. And this applies to CTAs too. You know, what's the research process? How do things get into the model? It, it's not, you can apply this just as well to quantitative as to fundamental strategies, but the outstanding tends to be not a near-term period of strong performance. Outstanding tends to be a long-term history of, of, of success and excellence. Uh, And, and what you want, what we typically do is it's, you know, it's a lot of case study evaluation. Like let's go through, you know, it it would not be uncommon for us to evaluate a group. And over the course of a six month period at the end of every month, get on the phone, talk about the decisions they made, the performance, the results and why they made those decisions. And what we're looking for is really good judgment. There's a great quote from Michael Lewis um, in his book, uh, about um i think it's in the book the undoing project and he you know he says the, deci- the i'm going to botch this but it's going to be pretty close the role of the decision maker is not necessarily to be right but to understand the odds and play them well and everything in investing there's very few times when things are discrete everything is a range of outcomes and probabilities around it so for outstanding investors the track record is a signal but what you want to dig into is is how do they make decisions and is there a pattern of really good judgment. And what's the judgment about? Well, the judgment is about what's the potential upside here? What's the potential downside? What are the probabilities? And so the outstanding tends to be how do they make decisions uh, and and identify opportunity? And then the thoughtful side of it is, frankly, it's, it's a question of just, are they mindful about risk? You know, everyone says they are, but once you know what you're looking for in terms of mindfulness about risk, it becomes a lot more apparent whether risk is at the forefront or as an afterthought and how they take it. So, we, we're looking for that combination of both outstanding opportunity identification and also really thoughtful about the risks and likelihoods and how things then get sized and, and, and things like that.
3: Okay. And I mean, you talk about that both from a systematic perspective, you can't quant, and it, it sounds like those types of things may be easier to evaluate on the discretionary side, um, arguably, maybe, maybe not. But is there a different lens you have to look through for evaluating quant strategies or not? Do you put more emphasis on the data? Or is it still very much a focus on the principles, the research process, and um,
0: how they've constructed that? I think it's pretty balanced. Um, You know, I think that you know, you, you can go and visit some of these quant shops and, and their performance and then you, you sort of meet with the research team and you you understand how the ideas get vetted, you see how the ideas compete with each other, how they eventually with more conviction conviction get sized up and go into it. And I, I think that, you know, ultimately that even for quant strategies, the people are, are generating the models, they're generating the research, they're generating what goes into the portfolio. And so that's where you have to start. And um, you know, I'm not we don't have mathematic phds on staff and things like that so a lot of it is is uh is the multiple data points over time to build conviction um and and i think that you absolutely want to be able to do in fact i actually contrary to your point i think the discretionary is is a lot harder from more kind of top you know if we're talking sort of more macro strategies it's it's far more difficult because it's hard to identify someone that got something right It's always hard to identify the amount of luck and skill in there and you know using malbosan's framework of can you lose on purpose if the answer is no there's a good amount of luck that is likely embedded and the systematic is a little bit more you know i wouldn't say easy none of them are easy but the discretionary is harder because you're you know there tend to be far fewer bets that can move the portfolio and they they tend to it's very difficult you know it's very difficult to identify a group or an individual, it's usually more individuals and groups that sort of have a good sense of what are the forward scenarios, what are the likelihoods, and then kind of picking from one to the next, which ones will work out. I think discretionary is probably the hardest to get right over the long term.
3: And has that influenced your allocations? Have you had less to discretionary because of that? Or is that just something that you live with, that there's a higher range of possible outcomes in that element of the portfolio
0: no it's 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 been very very difficult you know I'd, I'd say that we are a, de, you know there are a handful of strategies we probably say default target size should be zero <laughs> and then to the degree that you can find something that that uh, you know has proven otherwise and has and has done so over multiple time periods and different regimes then maybe your conviction can go up but, there, you know, that that's a space which is very difficult to do well on any form of consistent basis.
3: Okay. So thinking about all of that, I mean, in the context of the portfolio construction, then, uh, you know, your hedge fund, your absolute return allocation, is it a balance of presumably the, of bottom up and top down? Or is it more, here's the set of managers that we have conviction, they can generate performance and we're going to go with that? Or is it starting from, well, we're going to have an absolute return portfolio, probably, you know, maybe... 20% CTA, 20% macro or 20% longshore 20%. Uh, how do you find a balance between the top down and the long,
0: and the uh, bottom up? I'd say that for us, we start with the bottom up um, because, you know, again, if, if you don't have, if you're not sure about a group um, starting top down and sort of forcing something in, we haven't found that to work. So our approach tends to be, you know, find the groups. And then from a top down, I think we're a little bit, Try not to be too clever about it, and sort of say, "Well, you, you still want if you can, you want to have diversifi- diversification by strategy, by space, by you know, by thinking, by approach, by geography." Um, but but from a bottom up perspective, that has to be there first. And 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 uh, you know, if the particular teams, if you find them, um, what uh, the way ours builds out is you then sort of each category organically fills itself by your selection. And then you create some constraints for yourself around, you know, how much you're willing to have in, in each space. But we, we certainly wouldn't see ourselves as, as forcing anything from a top down. Cause again, these are, these are active strategies and it's very people dependent and um, you can't, you know, there's not, there's not an approach that you can take that on a top down is likely to just satisfy your objective.
3: Fair enough. Um, and you touched on kind of the the challenge of the manager selection, and you know assessing look versus skill. Um, can you fa- can you fail on purpose? That that type of idea. So I mean, it's something that we've talked to other guests around is the whole area of behavioural biases in 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 manager selection. So it is you know there's a whole array of them that that come fall into this um, challenge. Yeah, what do you think are the things that most obviously come to mind that you have to kind of keep to the forefront of your mind when, when you're evaluating, uh, or evaluating managers? And then secondly, you know, apart from being aware of biases, what, what is there anything you can do from the portfolio or investment
0: process perspective to help uh, uh, mitigate them? So biases first and then approach to mitigating. You know, there's been so much great research on biases that, you know, it's almost... I almost feel like no matter what scenario you're in, especially if your team, there are multiple active biases in play at the moment and, you know, often competing with each other. And I, but I think the one, if I had to pick a tip of the iceberg bias, my personal opinion is that it tends to be sort of, um, track record is thesis, you know, performance, you know, I can just point to it and you uh, you know, the phrase is true. You can't argue with numbers, but I also don't think numbers tell you the whole truth either. So, you know, that, that piece of it, I, I personally believe, and I think we have found that, you know, the performance number is the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot going on underneath it that then the tip emerges, and that is what's there. Um, and so I think that one of the biggest biases is just dependence on quantitative analysis as, as track record is signal is thesis. And I, I would say, you know, track record is signal, that's possibly true. Track record as thesis is beware, because when things like regime shift or other things happen, um, all of a sudden you, you're you unlikely to trust your numbers anymore. Or you'll be far more sensitive to what could the underlying risks be that would change those outcomes. So, I mean, we could go into there are so many biases that could be talked about, but that that's one that I find tends to be a universal one. Um, and, and then, you know, if, if you start out and you have the, the benefit, I would say of joining something ahead of, of a, of a really strong correction. It, it tends to tear down that bias and perception pretty quickly. Cause you find out that like, yes, this was my number, but you know, I probably should have paid more attention to the vol which showed the whole range and think in terms of ranges instead of the, the, the performance number. Um, so that dependency on quantitative is, is, I think, at least at the outset. I think people can grow out of it over time, but there's a universal element of that. The way that we've attempted to approach it is is in terms of being very intentional in our culture and our approach and our process. So, you know, we, every single prospective investment that comes, every existing investment has at least two sets of eyes and ears that are coverage. And that's, you know, to help people stay balanced and to stay objective about things. Um, And then for new investments, you know, there, we have a primary team, which is tasked with conducting the due diligence process. And then on top of that, we assign a review team and the review team includes people from other teams and from other asset classes to provide additional perspective, resources, networks. And, and it's a little bit of a, of a messy process and sometimes feels disorganized because you've got people from different teams um, contributing and trying to help. But that said, I'm, I'm amazed at how frequently things come in that just help that process, help us diligence it from that different set of perspectives. So one of the ways we've sought to um, mitigate those biases is, is a slightly larger group of team that helps review each asset as it comes through or each investment. Um, and then we also sort of try and take a growth mindset about our people. We, we want people not to be pigeonholed. They may start off in a particular asset class strategy or area. But over time, we want them to go deep in that space, and then also go lateral in other things because I think it gives them better perspective. the The topic of, you know, generalists versus specialists. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, I think if you can, to some degree, bring them together, it can be really helpful in decision making.
3: Yeah, interesting. And um I mean, from a building that back up to the overall portfolio, then you know obviously you're saying don't put too much emphasis on the track record um how do you go from kind of that quantitative and qualitative evaluation to formulating some kind of return expectation that that you can kind of stand over then at the portfolio level given that maybe you know absolute return is what about 15 percent or so of the portfolio maybe a bit more so it's pretty meaningful and is that based on some kind of perception of a of a risk premium, or an assumed sharp, or, or how do you think about you know? Obviously, as you say, you can you can probably have a good good sense on the volatility, but 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 um, yeah, re- return uh, expectations uh, setting for for alts, uh, How do you kind of
0: approach that? Return setting for expectations for alts, I I do think there's an element depending on the strategy. I think for sure there's a risk premium element. You know, there's cash. And then you've got investment grade and then, you know, maybe bank debt and then high yield and then mezzanine debt and then, you know, pref equity, private equity. As you go through the different parts of a capital structure, um, you can kind of use a premium based approach. And then I, I think in the alts, you know, the other spaces, you do have to default with some degree of, uh, or if you don't default, I don't know how you would do it, but for sure you can start from the place of, well, what's been the annualized long-term number? Okay. Okay we can look at that. Um, Second, let's overlay that with what's the current environment for that space. I mean, one of my favorite questions to ask managers is simply, if everything works out to your upside case tomorrow, what's the likely return in the portfolio? And, you know, like most of them know the answer to that pretty quickly because they've underwritten it. Uh, So there's an element of like the backward looking, which you can't ignore, but I think be wary of just extrapolating it forward, which is a, you know, that probably the second bias that's parceled with just the quant is the natural tendency to just take what has happened and continue that trend, continue that trend forward. So I think in the, inc- in the current environment for some strategies, an increasing or a higher rate environment is a positive, um, for, for, very, for very, for a lot of reasons. Um, but that's return expectations. It's asset. It's, you know, kind of strategy by strategy. Um, I think as an entire asset class, we will start with what has been the longer term result. Uh, and truth be told, those those tend to be pretty good predictors at an asset class level um on a on a bottom up basis though, uh, line by line, I think is how you have
3: to evaluate. yeah, fair enough. and I mean the forty, twenty forty overall asset allocation is is that something that you would say you see as being stable over time? You know over the next 10 years or so or if you saw a big shift in valuation one way or, or the other would that change so if if equities bounce back and hit new highs and which reached ridiculous PEs, would you be saying okay now that there's less value there or if we saw a big you know a resumption to the downside in equities and and you know by certain value measures that became more attractive what would, would that tilt it or or you know, you, you, I, I guess you're already kind of 37 in public equities versus 40. Does that reflect valuation view? Or how how responsive is, is the overall portfolio to perceptions of, of value at the asset class and strategy level?
0: Oh, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I, I would say that it's, if we had a, a regime shift that seems to be a structural shift, that would probably push us to more reevaluate the question of, is it stable for the next 10 years? You know, as we go through our next deep dive into what are we expecting and, you know, what's the, what are the potential outcomes of that? I think you have to, I think allocators and and investors, you have to be willing and able to reevaluate, you know, for the, for, for a very long time, our portfolio has been relatively stable, but we've also been in a relatively, tight band of regime, largely yes. driven by interest rates. I would say that interest rates are probably the primary factor that would change all of the potential to make change. And and that's something that's been said internally in our organization for many years is if we were to go back tomorrow to an interest rate period where, you know, interest rates are 8%, that's going to have yes. really different ap- longer term 10-year implications for asset classes. So I, I think the way that we try and build it is you can't build it. There's no portfolio that can be built on a permanent basis. That said, unless there's strong reason to believe that the regime has actually shifted, you, you really need to kind of stick to it. If, if there's one thing I know, if you want to fail, change your asset allocation on a regular basis <laughs> because you'll always, okay, be, yes. you'll always yeah. be chasing... Um, either the last opportunity or fighting the prior battle. And so there's far more value to be sort of pick an approach, understand the pros and cons, and and demonstrate some persistence. Okay. So you
3: mentioned that, you know, in terms of cultivating talent and people, you like to kind of get people to go from kind of specialist to generalist. I mean, from your own evolution, from being a um, you're kind of a hedge fund specialist to moving into more asset allocation and, and deputy CIO. What do you think has been important from the, the skill set to be able to do um, kind of a CIO type role? Uh, do you think having done lots of different types of um, strategies and approaches is helpful? Or, you know, if, um, if you were to kind of outline the ideal path, if, if there is one, what do you think that would be?
0: Oh, goodness. So, um, you know, I think I would probably start with the mindset. You know, have have a growth mindset about yourself. Um, constantly be seeking to learn. I, I think, to a large degree, my path. You know, I've been at URS since 2007. I've been involved in the build out of absolute return, private credit, taking uh, more private equity investments in house, real assets. You know, if you can, you know, honestly, being part of an organization that has a growth mindset about its people is probably one of the key factors. You know, so many organizations, at least from my peers who I talk to say, you know, it's great that you guys have the ability to grow your people. Because for for me, I have to sort of posture and change organizations every time I need to move up. And at URS, we've tried to take a really intentional growth mindset about our people, offer a career path you know, growing our people is one of our core competencies. And and I think that the, um, you know, what would I recommend to people? Honestly, I think learn to write. The ability to, to articulate and communicate complex things in simple manners and written form is really critical. Frankly, I think if you can be part of a, you know, I think our private equity team will smile if they hear this, but I'll, I'll say if you can be part of a credit team, it's extremely useful. I, I came from you know, the first 10 years as a hobbyist, uh, and then through school as, as only thinking from the equity lens. And then when I got to URS in early 2008 was assigned to be part of the credit endeavor. The world changes when you see how complex that side of a balance sheet is and how influential it is on everything else that happens. So if I had to say, you know, those couple pieces of advice would be, you know, growth mindset, learn to write, and and then also help it's really healthy to have a credit lens in your back pocket because you'll appreciate risk from a different perspective you'll think about things differently when our team you know it's not uncommon for our team to be looking at something and then you know want the credit team to participate in a diligence call because they will get a whole different set of questions that that frequently either the operator or the manager knows but they may not naturally tend to go there because they're thinking about the opportunity. But that balancing okay. of both opportunity and risk, I think, is critical. You know, if you want to move up, performance is one thing, but having a good view of, of both both sides of the coin um, helps helps you along that path.
3: Fair enough. And I mean, you touched on developing people, etc., and lots of organizations say they they do this. So, I mean, what is it that you're specifically doing? You think that would differentiate? Um, URS from other plans and and the opportunities and how you develop your investment
0: people well we um, so to just let's take someone coming straight out of out of a program out of of university when they join URS typically you're assigned to a team and we have a, a three year analyst program and and there are partic- there's a specific set of things we are looking for you to develop along that time frame. So not just come in and do a good job, but we have a set of criteria that if you do well along those criteria, you will be given more responsibility, more accountability, and and more rope. And from there, we have a senior analyst program, which is also you know sort of defined and timeline with with again additional. Criteria and things that you need to develop, and and it's not that you know it's not that you'll be doing it solo. We we, you know our job is to grow you. So um, portfolio managers and senior team members, part of their job is you know it's in their it's in their job requirements as to grow people, help them develop their competencies. So you know it's it's both um, it's both a mindset we talk about it, but systematically it's incorporated into our objectives. It's incorporated into how we you know conduct annual reviews, all those things. Because frankly. The more experience and growth the people have, the more it extends our reach, our capabilities, and our our potential. So, frankly, I, I you know you make the comment that a lot of organizations pay lip service to it, and I, you know I think that we we're not perfect, and a lot of what we have is aspirational. But that I think it's empowering for a brand new analyst to show up with limited experience, be assigned to a review team that's going to look at a new CTA investment. And be expected to figure it out along the way, and understand it, and ask thoughtful questions. I mean, we expect our team. If you're part of a review team, it's it's not you know you're expected to come to the discussion with questions in hand to help the whole team better understand it, and through that, the individual will grow. Okay, so challenging uh,
3: objectives from day one by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, that's uh, we're almost up to the hour. It sounds like a pretty good segue. You've given a, a couple of kind of ideas there in terms of things that up and coming cios should should be able to do in terms of writing and articulation and considering the upside and, and downside that risk and and downside mindset and um, we always ask guests for any other advice or recommendations any books that have been particularly influential on you that you would uh, like to share with us and think are worthwhile uh, for people to delve into
0: well i think you know is it as it relates to advice, there's one thing I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and that is how key governance is to any successful program. Okay. Maybe it happens, but I, I've never heard anyone say, "Well, look how poor the governance structure is." But at least the results are exceptional. Like, I mean, maybe that mm. happens. I've never seen that coupled that way. So, one comment would be if you're you know moving into a leadership role, anything that you can do to to Enable the governance and improve the governance, and often that's difficult coming from the bottom up. But governance is so critical to success in these things. You know, URS were in in an enviable position. I think the govern. If someone had to say, what do you attribute success to at URS? First and foremost, would be a really strong governance program. Um, you know, there are for sure programs out there that are better, but most of those are outside the U.S. I think URS has amongst the best if not the best model for how to govern a, a plan like ours
3: and in like in very short it, it's probably a whole separate area to get into but in in, in a couple of minutes or in, in very briefly what would you say is the absolute critical element to a government structure governance structure that adds value
0: uh some degree of independence and the professionalism of your board so, and I don't mean that in terms of behavior, but predominantly having investment professionals oversee an asset allocation uh, and, and oversee a large investment team. You know, at $54 billion, our, our board is largely investment professionals with decades of experience. That that really enables the right kind of discussions about investing. Uh, so that would be the first. I, you know, for the other things, I think, you know, I gave the advice um, – you know, learn to write. I think that's critical. You know, some of the other influential things, anything you can read by Charlie Ellis, you should read it. Uh, I think his, um, paper, which was written in the early eighties, the characteristics of successful investment firms is as relevant today as it was 40 years ago when written. In fact, you read it and, and it still feels very fresh, but Charlie Ellis, I think is amongst the, the foremost investment thinkers, um, you know, was a member of the Yale Investment Committee for ten years and has written a lot of influential things. But his his material is is fantastic. Um, I think his book, The Partnership, uh, which is about Goldman Sachs, is a good case study in how the tip of the iceberg doesn't show everything that's going on underneath and how those things are all critical. You know, I, I'd also say that from a leadership perspective, Patrick Lynchione's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Is an exceptionally good book, uh, and it's you know what I love about that book is less, less. Here are new things to add to your, you know, day-to-day tasks, and more about let's identify all of the things that create hurdles and just stop doing those things. <laughs> it's always easier to to do less. Um, I'd also say that uh, Hit Refresh by Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is a, is an exceptionally good book about constant learning. And and taking the best of what is and, and iterating to get better. Um, and then, you know, from there, as far as investment thinkers, you know, my list isn't all that atypical, you know, I think Howard Marks is always great to read. Dylan Grice is probably one of my favorite writers as is James Montier. Um, and then, you know, outside that just just stay curious. I mean my favorite, the only thing I read with any consistent regularity is The Economist, uh, because it really pulls you and it can pull you in so many different directions. Great stuff. Well, that's uh, some some
3: a link, reasonably lengthy reading list for us, uh, but but all good uh, good stuff. So very much appreciate that, and thanks very much for coming on and chatting to us today. There's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack there. Um, so I think we've learned a lot. So um, thank you
2: very much, and with that, I'll hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan and Jason, for a very insightful conversation where you manage to touch on some really key nuances in the allocation process that we don't hear so often. If I start in reverse order, I love Jason's advice to young people about what they should learn, such as writing. Even if they work in finance, this is key. And I can't tell you how many times I have encouraged my own children to focus on this particular skill. And of course, having a growth mindset is also super important on all levels. It was also very topical to hear Jason mention that interest rates and the level of them would be the primary factor that can prompt a bigger change in their asset allocation. And I think with how the world is evolving, interest rates will be the key driver of change, which, of course, we also spoke with Edward Chancellor about in a recent episode. I enjoyed hearing about what they consider the most dangerous biases in their process and how they overcome them. And what it really is that they look for in a manager, what makes them outstanding and thoughtful. That's it for this episode. Make sure you go and follow Jason and Alan's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand what is going on from a global macro point of view in order to allocate capital well. And we really look forward to sharing many more of these insights in our series as it continues. From Alan and me, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.